Good morning, Equipus Church. You guys doing good? You're looking unbelievably good looking this morning. Why don't you just say hi to the person beside you as you take your seat, maybe give you a high five, fist pump if you really like them, maybe swipe right, whatever you need to do. Line you up there with somebody cool. What an honor it is to be with you. I appreciate so much the uh, opportunity to be invited to speak to the men's conference and church uh, today. Men's conference was unbelievable. It was very, very cool, and uh, God did some great stuff. And I'm only just bummed that I didn't get to see the boxing. I thought that was a stroke of genius. Nothing more biblical than some men punching the tar out of each other. Jesus said to turn the cheek, uh, the other cheek. He didn't say whose cheek to turn or how to turn it. He just said that we need some cheek turning. Bible does say lay hands on them and see if they recover. I think that must have been to do with boxing. I can't think of anything better, but uh, uh, it was just great. And uh, I love your pastors. Sam and Kathy are fantastic. And so honored to, that they would invite me here. 20 locations uh, in New Zealand and around the world. As I was standing in worship this morning, I really just felt like God said that he's put a spirit of ridiculous favor uh, on the leadership and on this house. And... Uh, uh, I, that's just something not, not to take lightly. That's something to embrace and to engage. And the scripture says that if you walk with the wise, uh, you grow wise, who you partner with. That's why it's incredibly important uh, to pick the church that you're going to make your family church. And if you're here today just observing and just looking, maybe it's your first time, I always encourage people, don't make that decision on your first visit. Always come two or three times. Uh, some of you, this may be your first time in church ever. And so uh, that was a big choice to come. And so it was, it was good. You're here. I know it may, it may feel a little weird, but come two or three times and get to know this, this house has got ridiculous favor on it. And so if you choose something like Equipus to be your local church, that, that ridiculous favor can come on you. How many people here today would like a little bit of God's ridiculous favor to be overshadowing them? And so if you walk with a house, that is yours as, uh, as an inheritance. And so... Uh, that's awesome. I, I'd love it if you'd grab your Bible, go with me uh, to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We do not have a countdown clock anywhere, um, and so we need that visually in front of me because I have no idea. I've preached for five hours. No, I won't. <laughs> my ADD would kick in and I'd get tired of my own message, but anyway. Matthew chapter 18, I'm going to read from verse 23. Uh, It starts, it says this. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now Jesus is telling a parable, and so this is a made-up story. And so every detail in the story is deliberate. Nothing is accidental. He's, he's making a point here. Now, the number 10,000 is not an arbitrary number. The reason Jesus is using this number is because in that day, that's a mind-blowing number. So he's throwing this out to try to blow their mind with the hugeness of how big this, this thing is. I, I don't know if you have a number in your family that you use to try to describe big things. We, we use the word kajillion. 
That's the number we use in the Morgan household. So I love you, I love you more, I love you, it's like the biggest, the biggest number. And, and the talent was the largest weight that they would use when they were measuring out gold, silver, or bronze. And so Jesus says, this guy's in debt, 10,000 talents. It's a huge number. And goes on and says, he was not able to pay. So his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and that all that he had and payment would be made. Now, in that day, uh, if you were in debt, couldn't pay it, they would take you to pay the debt. But this debt is so big that it's you, your wife, your kids, in other words, all your lineage, all your legacy, to be, and everything you have is going to be used to pay the debt. Now, to give you some context, a talent was equivalent to about 20 years' salary for the average worker. So this guy is 200,000 years in debt. How many have just made feel a lot better about your credit card bill right now? <laughs> he is 200,000 years in debt. He is not able to be, to be able to pay. And so the servant fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I'll pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion. Obviously not intelligence because he didn't have 200,000 years to wait. So he was moved with compassion released him and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now a denarii is equivalent to about one day's salary to the average worker. So this guy's a hundred days, it's about a third of a year. Let's just call that $15,000. And so if that's $15,000, somebody owed you $15,000, that's not like a small amount of money but in comparison, in context of what has just been happening in his life is where the point is being made. And the Bible says he laid hands on him, took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and, uh, at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. There are two players in this parable. There's the master who has a servant who owes him so much money, around 200,000 years of salary in debt. And then you have the servant who has just forgiven the debt, but then goes out and when he finds somebody who owes him some money, and in contrast, it's microscopic. And you anticipate that what he's gonna do is go, I just got forgiven so much, bro, don't even worry about it, but he would not forgive the debt. You have two players, the king, who's got the money and the mindset, let's call him the cajillionaire, who writes off this massive debt. And then you've got the servant who doesn't have the money or the mindset to be able to forgive any sort of a debt. If you could take the name out king or, or, or master or, and servant out and place your name in there, like if you were in that parable, which player would you wanna be? Would you wanna be the cajillionaire or would you wanna be the servant? 
I don't know about you, I want to be the gajillionaire. I want to to be that guy. I think most of us here today, if we're really honest, would say, I would really want to be that person. So that's what I want to talk about a little bit today. I want to talk about how to develop what I would call the gajillionaire mindset. So before we do that, let's just pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it's alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword able to get into areas of our life and penetrate and bring supernatural change from the inside out. We thank you that your word often reads us more than we are reading it. It is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And so God, I pray today that you would overshadow us with the Holy Spirit and bring this word alive. More than anything, God, I pray, oh Jesus, help me not to be boring. And God, I pray for the men and women that are here today in this auditorium. Oh God, help them not to be boring either, because that's always really, really horrible in Jesus' name. And everyone said? How many just by a show of hands have ever been asked a question and you are a little nervous to answer the question because you feel like the question is loaded. You feel like the question has an agenda attached to it. Give me a wave of your hand if you've ever, yeah. My, my daughter will do that to me all the time. My youngest daughter, Brooke Michaela, she's 19 years of age, and she'll text me, hey, Dad, do you want to do me a favor? And then that's the end of the text, like nothing added. And I'm nervous about that because I'd like some detail. I'm not sure what the favor, now, now my wife is the queen of the question with the agenda. It'll be late at night, we'll just crawl into bed, pull the sheets up, I'll roll over and look at her stunningly gorgeous face and she'll look back at this and, <laughs> and, 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 and she'll whisper softly with the most romantic voice, baby, you thinking about going upstairs and getting yourself a drink? And I'll be like, uh, well, no, I, I hadn't really thought about that. Why? And she'll say, well, I just thought while you're up there, <laughs> would you mind getting me a drink? Anybody ever been asked a question with an agenda? There are two questions in this passage of Scripture, Matthew ch- chapter 18. And, and both of them have an agenda. The first question kicks off the passage of Scripture. The disciples come to Jesus and they, they ask this question, uh, Jesus, in your kingdom, who's going to be the greatest? Like, who's the greatest in your... Now, now, they have an agenda behind this question. The reason they're asking this question is their context of kingdom is different than ours. Their vantage point is different than your and my vantage point. For this point, uh, there has been no crucifixion. There has been no resurrection. There has been no ascension. There has been no baptism of the Holy Spirit. The church hasn't been birthed. So in their mindset, Messiah is coming to create a political revolution. What they're anticipating is that Messiah will come, raise up this army, overthrow the Roman government, and Israel will rule and reign. And they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And so what they're really saying is, Jesus, when it all goes down and we take control and you become Messiah of the universe, you're going to need some roll buddies. 
You're gonna need some, you're gonna need some like guys to go with you. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna need some people on your right hand and on your left. You're probably gonna need like a vice messiah and like a deputy of salvation or something like that. You know, you're gonna need some people with authority. And when you're picking the team, how do we get into the team? How do we get that kingdom authority? That's the question. And now that's the context of everything Jesus is about to say. How do you and I have great kingdom authority? That's the context of his discussion. And in verse 3, he grabs a little child and pulls the child into the middle. Now what he's about to talk about is not about children. It's not about how you and I should handle children. The child is the illustration that he's using to describe how you and I have kingdom authority. And then from verse three, Jesus just starts dropping bombs about kingdom authority. He says, if you want kingdom authority, you need to repent and you need to come into the kingdom just like this little child. In verse four, he says, you need to humble yourself as this little child if you wanna be the greatest. In verse five, he says, how you treat others is a direct representation on how you treat Jesus. In verse six, he says, if you take advantage of each other in this moment of humility and submission, you are in deep yogurt. In verse seven to nine, he says, beware of offenses and try not to offend anybody. In other words, children, please learn how to play nicely. In verse 10 to 11, he says, don't treat each other arrogantly. In verse 12 to 14, he says, lost people matter to him. He says, I'll leave the 99 and chase after the one. You need to realize that every one of you here today is incredibly valuable to God. God doesn't have a hierarchy of value. He doesn't favor the people on the stage more than he favors the people on the seats. He loves every one of us. And even if you're at the back or in the middle or somewhere feel like, am I even noticed? Am I important? Have I any value? God says, yes, I love you. And I'll leave everybody else just to chase after you. That's how valuable that you are. Verse 15, he says, if your brother sins against you or offends you, or upset you, or disappoints you, uh, then work it out. He says, you probably can't avoid getting hurt. Somewhere, somewhere along the line, someone's gonna offend you, someone's gonna disappoint you, someone's gonna upset you. And he says, what you have as a Christian, if you want authority, then you gotta take responsibility as the person who was offended to try to get that right. He says what you should do is build a bridge of reconciliation. Take, take a bridge and go to that person and, and rather speak about them, go and speak to them. You, you go to them and you express the fact that they hurt you. You express the fact, you try to build reconciliation. He says if that doesn't work, then you get somebody and then you have another shot at it by bringing somebody else into the conversation and try to work it out. He says, if that doesn't work, then you get the church involved. And if that doesn't work, have another shot. The Bible says, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It doesn't mean that you're gonna be at peace with everybody. And so Jesus says, you try personally, you try with somebody, you try with the church, have a couple of goes at trying to reconcile, trying to work it out. And then after trying to work it out, then you leave. 
then you can disconnect. Having said, I tried everything, but it just didn't work. We couldn't work it out. And, and rather than saying, God told me to leave the church. God says, you have a responsibility to try to work it out. Stop blaming me for your passive aggressiveness. He said, if you want authority. Now, now listen, just to be honest with you, I, I, I'm terrified. We are probably the most uh, uh, easily offended generation ever to live on the planet. I, I said that in Canada a couple of weeks ago, and a young guy came up to the pastor at the end of the service and says, I was really offended today when he said that we were the most easily offendable generation. I thought to myself, you've just become an illustration. Thank you very much. But we are. You know how terrifying it is to be a preacher today? I probably already offended somebody today in here. I'm sorry I offended you, and I haven't even tried yet. In, in Chicago, they are so politically correct that if I use some sort of a foreign accent in my message, they edit it out of the podcast so it doesn't offend anybody. That's so pathetic. I'm an Australian. <laughs> I live in America. There's probably not a week that goes by that someone doesn't come up to me like, G'day, mate, how you going? Chuck another shrimp on the bye-bye, you know. <laughs> trying to do an Australian accent. And I can tell you not once ever somebody doing it, trying to do an Australian not once has my response been, trying to sound like me. <laughs> now I respond with, because <laughs> that's the correct response. It's funny. It's funny. It's terrifying. I've offended people by stuff I've said. I've offended by people stuff I didn't even say. I had this one girl write me an email. She's all angry. She said, you preached and you said that Peter denied Jesus like a little girl. And she went on to give me this like fight like a girl article and all these other stuff about women or whatever. And I wrote back and said, you know, I'm sorry you're offended. Most times I offend people by stuff I say. In your case, I didn't even say that. <laughs> I never said Peter denied Jesus like a little girl. I said Peter denied Jesus to a little girl, which is exactly what happened. But her filter changed the word from two to like. And she was offended by her own filter. And there's nothing I can do to stop you being offended by your filter. I was preaching in, in this church in Minneapolis on Super Bowl Sunday, and I love football. Again, I just love games of mindless violence, and, and uh, that's the way I'm wired. And so I was talking about baseball, because I hate baseball. Baseball's horrible. Baseball sort of like, like cricket on Prozac. And <laughs> nine innings and one run is just like awful. And so I was saying, you know, I, I just have a suggestion on how you could make it better. And, and it just seems easy for me that the fielder is just so easy to catch the ball. They're just standing out there waiting. Oh, here comes the ball. They got these huge mitts and they catch the ball. And so I, said, I was talking about how I just thought, wouldn't it be cool if you could just make it harder for the fielder to get the ball. Just make it harder. And not all the time, but maybe two or three times in the game that the captain of the team 
could, could just have a button. Just like, you could just hit a button. Just be, hit the button and just release pit bulls. <laughs> and you could have these pit bulls chasing after the ball. And so now the fielder is going to try to catch the ball and fend off pit bulls. And maybe just set those pit bulls on fire. You got like, could, could you imagine anything more scary than a flaming pit bull coming at you? It would be awesome. Well, this lady wrote me this email and she was going to report me to Peter for cruelty to animals. And so we checked out her Facebook page and she was a dog lover. Man, every photo on her Facebook page was her with a dog. It's like her with a chihuahua, her with the sausage dog, you know, it's like, it's like all, all, all these dogs. And so she's just filtering it through cruelty to dogs. And I had to write back to her and, 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 and apologize to her saying, I'm just so sorry you're offended, but I can just tell you uh, there were no animals actually injured in my joke. And that I deliberately took time out before I told my joke to dress all my pit bulls up in fire-resistant suits. <laughs> I probably should have mentioned that in my joke, but I thought it would kill it. <laughs> Please be informed that the pit bulls all survived. But she was offended by her filter. You know people are filtering what you say by the tweets they say of quotes that you said in your message. People will tweet stuff and they, John said this, and I'm like, yeah, I didn't say that at all. <laughs> That's good, that wasn't me. <laughs> it's like, and, and so, so this will happen in life. Assumption kicks in, your filter kicks in, and Jesus says, listen, you and I got to be bigger than that. We are so politically correct right now. Everything is terrifying and scary, and we've got to get some backbone in us. We, we don't want to be a pack of people that are offended by everything and just bounce from church to church because they offended me and they hurt me. And Jesus is saying, no, come on. get some. If you want some kingdom authority, you're going to learn that stuff like that is going to happen in life, and you've got to learn how to handle it. You've got to learn how to get through it. You've got to learn how to get over it. Learn how to build a bridge. Verse 18, he says that reconciliation, this spirit builds kingdom authority. He says, assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything, if we can get into agreement, if we can get into unity, if we can get over our fences and stay locked in to team, God says, then what happens in your life will have kingdom authority. Well, then that leads us to the second question with the agenda. Jesus is talking about kingdom authority. If you want to have kingdom authority, you've got to learn how to forgive. If you want to have kingdom authority, you've got to learn how to get over your offenses. If you want to have kingdom authority, you've got to learn how to get over your hurt, get over the disappointment. If you want to be great, that's how you do it. You learn to forgive. Leads to the second question. It has an agenda. Peter comes up to Jesus and says, well, then how many times should we forgive? Seven times. Uh, I love people when they ask you a question and answer it at the same time. You know they're not inquiring for wisdom. They're making a statement about who they are. So Peter does that. Well, how many times should I forgive? Seven times? This is a question with an agenda. Uh, in, in, in those days, generous forgiveness taught by the rabbis was three times. From a scripture in the Old Testament. So the rabbis taught... 
If you are generous in your forgiveness, you'll forgive somebody three times. So Peter has doubled generous forgiveness and added tax. <laughs> this is sort of how I envisage Peter thinking about his question. He goes to the disciples, hey guys, how you guys doing? Good to see you. Good to see you, James. Good to see you, Judas. Just keep away from me. Uh, now, Thomas, I know you're going to doubt this is accurate, but uh, the guys gathered together, gathered together. Jesus is talking about forgiveness here. It's talking about who's the greatest knows how to forgive. Look and learn, gentlemen. Look and learn. So Peter comes out. Uh, Jesus, uh, you're talking about forgiveness here, I notice. And how greatness comes by those who are willing to forgive. So I just want to roll it out. <clears throat> How many times should I forgive somebody? I'm suggesting to you seven times. <laughs> and Peter anticipated that Jesus would go, Yea, verily and therefore, Peter. And yea, again, I would say yea. That's my Jesus voice. That's my Jesus voice. Sort of how I imagined Jesus to talk. It was going to be really horrible if I get to heaven and Jesus is like, hello, how you going? <laughs> well, who are you? I'm Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. <laughs> Dude, you created the planet, you could have created a cool voice. <laughs> yea, verily and therefore, Peter, and yea, again, I'll say yea. You asketh thou the question, how many times should you forgive and you bust out with the answer of seven times. I've never heard of anything so huge in the concept of forgiveness. Yea, verily, and therefore, you bloweth my Messiah brain with the awesomeness of your space. My head is going off right now. That's what he anticipated Jesus to say. But Jesus is like, eh, um, why don't we try... Uh, 70 times seven. Why don't we just go with unlimited forgiveness? Yeah. Why don't we just roll with the whole point, there's never a time you don't forgive wow. <clears throat> if you want to have kingdom authority. Yeah. And then he said, there's a king that had a servant who owed him 10,000 talents. He rolls into this parable to illustrate his point on the bigness of forgiveness in our life. I believe in that parable we can learn some lessons on how to develop that cajillionaire mindset. Knowing that Jesus would never ever ask us to do something that ha he hasn't been willing to do himself. When Jesus went to the cross, they threw everything at him. They beat him with their fists. They pulled chunks of hair out of his face through his beard. They scourged him within an inch of his life. Made a crown of thorns and they rammed it into his skull and mocked him, calling him a king. They wrapped material around his bleeding body. They put a cross on his shoulder. And they made him walk up Golgotha's hill. They took large nails and they nailed them to his hands, they nailed them to his feet. They hung him up there on the cross to die of suffocation. That's how he would die 
through crucifixion, your body weight would eventually cause your rib cage to crush your lungs and you would just die of suffocation. They walked past him and they mocked him and they yelled all sorts of abuse. They hung an accusation over his head. They spat at him and jeered him as he hung up there naked in, in, in front of everybody. And after they threw everything at him, thinking that they were in control, Jesus looked down from the cross and looked at the people that did that to him. And he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. If you want to develop a Julianaire mindset, first thing that you've got to learn to do is you've got to learn how to receive the promise. Jesus didn't go to that cross for his sin. He, he went to that cross for our sin. And the Bible says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. None of us here have a perfect track record. We all need forgiveness from God. We all need a debt to be paid. Jesus said to those, men, forgive, Father, forgive them, as he hung on the cross for our forgiveness. His blood shed for our pain, our sin. We're going to learn how to receive the promise. If a man who was 200,000 years in debt had the whole debt wiped out, not, not one cent owing, everything paid off, that's what happens at the cross. Jesus took all our sin on the cross. We are forgiven of all our sin yesterday, today, and forever. He has wiped it all out. If you have the blood of Jesus Christ on your life, you are debt-free in heaven. There are some of you that are still repenting for stuff that God has no record of. There's still some of you that feel guilty for stuff that actually doesn't even exist in heaven. It may exist in your mind, but it does not exist in heaven. You're going to God with a prayer, trying to fix something that even doesn't even exist. They're going through the records in heaven saying, sorry man, we don't even see what you're talking about here. You're holding on to guilt. You're holding on to stuff. And the enemy loves to remind you of all of that, that God says, come on, when you came to my kingdom and you received forgiveness, we wipe that out. That doesn't exist in your track record. You are debt free in heaven. There's some of you here today, you've got to learn how to receive that promise. Now we're going to give you an opportunity if you've never been forgiven by God. If you've never ever come to Jesus and said, Father, please forgive me, forgive me for all my past and give me a brand new start, in just a few moments, we're going to pray a prayer and we're going to give you an opportunity to say to God, please forgive me. Please give me a brand new start in my life and relationship with you. There are some of you here today, you've never prayed that prayer. It could be your first opportunity to get your life right with God. And the only reason we're here today is because we've got a God that paid the price for all of our mistakes, all of our failures, and gave us a brand new start. There's some of you here today, and you prayed that prayer a long time ago, but right now you're back in church, maybe for the first time in a long time, and you're coming to God and saying, God, please forgive. We're going to give you an opportunity to pray that prayer. I think the band is coming. Not yet. We've still got like 20 minutes there. And so maybe if you can come in 10 more minutes. would be Because if you start playing romantic music right now, uh, it would be bad. I'll start singing love songs and stuff like that. And then your parents will beat me up. Uh, just to clarify, I have a horrible voice uh, of singing. Uh, I know that because I was worshipping in the car. And my wife said, um, that's enough. Um, <laughs> and I said to her, babe, I'm worshiping God, and he likes it. And she said, no, he doesn't. Um, <laughs> so I should never sing in public. 
or in private, apparently. Um, <laughs> you don't know how to receive the promise. Some of you here today are going to walk out realizing that God's forgive. He wiped it all out. You suppose it seems to be too huge. I guess if you just had 200,000 years of debt wiped out, that would seem too huge too. But you don't see that man running back to the king saying, hey, listen, you forgave me too much. That's just too much. Uh, that, that's, that's an overkill. Maybe you should forgive me 199,000 years and I should owe you 1,000. No, he was happy to walk out debt-free. And every one of you should be happy to walk out debt-free in heaven with no existence of any sin, past, present, or future. Lift up your head. Start walking like a child of the king. Stop beating yourself up and walking around in condemnation. God loves you, full stop. God loves you, end of story. You are a child of God. Second thing that you've got to learn how to do is you've got to learn how to reciprocate the privilege. Now, this is the essence of the parable. This is the, the whole meaning of this parable. You've got to learn how to reciprocate the privilege. Jesus said, on the cross, Father, forgive them. For him to say that, he already had to get to the point where he forgave them. He had to forgive them before he could ask the Father to forgive. And the whole point of this parable when you read it is you've got this person that's had this massive debt wiped out and then they have an opportunity to forgive something so small and then they wouldn't do it you think about the offenses that make people leave a church you think about a girl that's offended that she thought i said that peter denied jesus like a little girl if she said that in my church, there's a good chance if she hadn't written me the email, she would have walked out and left our church because she thought I didn't, because her filter told her something. But you think about that. You take in context, she won't forgive me for that, yet probably all her sin has been forgiven, and this is the point of the parable. Jesus is saying, when you realize how much God has forgiven you, you have a responsibility to be able to forgive those who've hurt you. Jesus taught us when we pray, he says, Father, forgive me my sins as I forgive those who have sinned against me. And when he amends the prayer, he goes back and says, listen, I better explain that bit so you, just in case you don't get it. Like, I need you to get that bit. I need you to understand that part of the power. It's incredibly important that you know how to reciprocate the privilege because if I forgive you your debt, I anticipate that you're going to go out and forgive somebody else their debt. Now, the reason the king could forgive the debt is because he had the resources to forgive the debt. Forgiveness is paying the account. This is what happens. Someone hurts you. Someone wounds you. Someone does something wrong by you and they take something from you. Maybe they stole your joy. Maybe they stole your purity. Maybe they stole your peace. Maybe they stole your future. Maybe they stole your innocence. They take something from you. You, you took that from me. And what it says, you need to give that back. I need that back. You stole my joy. I was happy until you did that to me. And you owe me that happiness back. I, I, I was doing all right. I was confident until you did that. But when you stole that from you need to give that back. That's, that's, what, that's where we are when we don't forgive. What forgiveness does is it doesn't ignore the fact that they did that. It doesn't bury your head in the sand and just pretend that it didn't happen. No, it acknowledges it happens. But what it says is, you stole my joy. But I don't need you to give me my joy back. I know that you can't pay it back. 
When the servant said, give me some time, I'll pay it back. The king's like, man, you can never pay that back. I know you don't have the resource to pay that back, so I cut the check for you. That's what forgiveness does. It looks at the person who hurts you and says, you probably can't give that back to me, but the good news is I don't need you to give that back to me because I've got a heavenly Father who has the resources that no matter what I need, I can draw that down from heaven. You stole my joy. I don't need you to give me joy because I get my joy from heaven. In His presence, the Bible says, is fullness of joy. The Bible says that the joy of the Lord is my strength. I may have sown in tears, but I'm going to reap in joy. Joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So no matter what you stole from me, I can download joy from the kingdom of God into my life. I can drop joy from the wells of my salvation. I I don't need you to give me that back because I can cut the check and I can pay the bill and we can move on from here. I, you stole my purity, but I don't need to get my purity back from you because I get my purity from heaven. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I stand before God white, holy and pure. You took my peace, but I need you to give me my peace back. I get my peace from heaven. My God shall keep me in perfect peace if my mind is just stayed on Him. God will give me the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, that keeps my heart and mind in the knowledge of Him. I don't need you to pay that back because I'm downloading everything I need from heaven. No matter what it is, my God shall supply all my needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. No matter what they took from you, You've got a heavenly Father who's got the riches to bring back to you whatever they stole from you. And here's where the authority comes in. The Bible says that the borrower is servant to the lender. In other words, whoever pays wins. Who is the greatest in that parable, the king or the servant? The king. Why? Because he cut the check. The borrower is servant to the lender. Whoever pays wins. So when they rob from you and you pay the check, you take authority over the hurt. From a small offense to crazy stuff that goes on in our life. There are some of you who've been holding on for offense that people did to you years ago. And they have you prisoner to that situation because you haven't forgiven them. But if you would forgive, doesn't mean that they didn't do it. God's not asking you to say it didn't hurt. God's not pretending, asking you to pretend that it doesn't never happen. God just says, no, I'm stepping over it. I'm cutting the check. I'm paying it and I'm moving on and I'm separating myself from that thing that hurt me. Let me give you the third thing. Go learn how to reconfigure the judgment. Go learn how to reconfigure the judgment. Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He says, Dad, I need you to forgive. I need you to forgive. The New Testament teaches us this. It says, you forgive them and then leave the vengeance to God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So when you forgive, you're going to reconfigure the judgment. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. In other words, Dad, I know that you're probably going to do something. We can just leave it here. We don't need any more judgment from now. We forgive and wipe it out, we're done. Let's just move on. 
Don't smite them with boils. Don't put sickness, don't do anything like that. Father, you just forgive them. We, we're done here. It cuts off the... This is the problem that most of us have when it comes to forgiveness, is we don't, we don't know how to move into the next phase. Because sometimes we should forgive and just forget and move on. Other times we should forgive, but we should never trust. We should forgive, but never trust again. I can forgive you. I trust you not to do that again. So I, I, I create some boundaries to make sure that that doesn't happen to me again. If you hurt me when I was little, don't come near my kids. Don't come anywhere near my children. I'm not, I'm not giving you access to my children because I forgave you for what you did when I was little. I entrust you. I forgave you the money you owed me. I'm never going to give you any money back. I'm not opening myself up to be hurt again. So you've got to reconfigure what's the right thing to do. In, in the parable, the servant who was forgiven went out and threw the other guy in jail. Now he was forgiven, no jail time, but people went and reported back to the king what he did. And the Bible says in that parable that the king then threw him in jail for what he did. Now he didn't throw him in jail for the debt he owed, but he threw him in jail because he was a repeat offender. So if you were, let's say, sexually abused when you were small, and you've never talked about that, and you hear me talking about forgiveness, and you say, John, do I need to forgive that person? And the Bible answer is yes, you do. You have to forgive what they did to you. It gives you authority over what they did to you. Then we'll say, well, what should I do next? Well, number one, you don't trust them again. But number two, if there's a likelihood that they could re repeat offend, and you've never talked about it. You've never brought it out in public. That's a hidden shame in your life. Then the right thing for you to do is get it out in the open. That's the right thing to do. Now, that decision could open up a cluster fudge of craziness in your world. I get that. And so that's when the church kicks in, that you can come to the leaders, you can come to the pastors and say, this thing happened to me when I was young, that person's still alive, they could still hurt somebody else, what do I do? And you need to get some counsel. But God doesn't ask you to forgive and then just pretend it didn't happen. He says that you forgive and then you do the right thing to be able to fix it. And sometimes let's just move on, sometimes let's don't trust, and sometimes let's get that bad boy out in the open and deal with it. But when you bring that judgment, let's just say reporting it to the police. You're reporting it to the police to deal that they don't hurt anybody else. You're not reporting it to say, I'm going to fix you, and I'm going to get you, and I'm going to show you, because you don't have any bitterness and weirdness in you because you've already forgiven. You're on the other side. You're an authority, and you say, look, I'm done here. I'm over that, but I'm still not going to allow you to get away with it, and I will not let you to do that to anybody else. I have authority here, and now I'm no longer a victim of what you've done. I have the victory because I'm operating in forgiveness. That's what God does. That's how you have the King Julian Air mindset. Now, if I, you guys can come up and play the romantic stuff now. <laughs> this last point is going to sound so powerfully spiritual. You're going to think to yourself, man, he went into another zone on that last point. It was genius. It's got nothing to do with me. It's because I've got soft music playing behind me. That's why we do this. It's a soft music moment. Before I go into my last point, I know I'll forget this. If I don't, we do have a, a, a resource in the lobby somewhere. It's a USB drive with a 
stack of messages. There's video and audio of each message and some interviews out there called The Collection. Threw some messages together and some of my favorite messages I've preached. Uh, and uh, uh, you can get that, you can buy that in the, in the lobby after, after service. If you USB drive, put it into your computer, into your whatever, download it, we'll bless you. Uh, you know, receive the promise, reciprocate the privilege. You've got to learn how to uh, reconfigure the judgment. Last and final thought is simply this. You've got to learn how to repurpose the pain. Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. It actually wasn't accurate because they knew exactly what they were doing. Nothing that they did was accidental. They didn't accidentally crucify Him. They didn't accidentally scourge Him. No, they set out to inflict as much pain as humanly possible. This was not their first crucifixion. This was a regular form of punishment for criminals. Everything that they did, they did with evil intent, designed to inflict as much pain, as much humiliation, as much torture as they could on Jesus. So when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, He wasn't saying, Father, forgive them because they're crucifying me accidentally. He's saying they don't know, he, he's like, they, they, they think they're killing me. They think they're taking me out. But Father, you can forgive them because they don't realize that unless I go through this, there's no salvation coming for mankind at the other end of all of this. They, 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 there's a, if there's no shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. I am, I am the Lamb of God. I am the final Passover Lamb. I've got to be sacrificed on this cross. So they think they're killing me, but they're actually setting me up for my destiny. They think they're taking me out, but they're setting me up for my story because without this. Now, Jesus never at one point said, Father, forgive them because I like crucifixion. Bible says, for the joy that was set before him was able to endure the cross. He didn't say he enjoyed it. He was able to endure the cross, wipe everything else out because he saw something greater at the other side. We'll learn how to reconfigure our pain. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't mean that it didn't hurt. But maybe there's a greater story in what you walk through. Most of us, the pain we walk through, there's never going to be a point in our life where like, man, I'm glad that happened to me. Wish I could have more of that. Just love that sort of bad stuff happening in my world. God doesn't expect you to do that. What, what, what reconfiguring the pain says, that happened to me. I don't like it. I didn't enjoy it, but I'm healed of it. And now it is a part of my story. It's a part of my story. I wish it wasn't. But it is. So what do I do with it? I repurpose it. And I realize there's probably someone in my world that's walking through the exact same pain. And, and maybe my overcoming of my pain can be used to help them overcome their pain. And, and, and because I've got on the other side of all of this, maybe my story can help them get on the other side of theirs. We realize that life is more than just us. And the things that happen to us, we don't have to ignore them. We have to pretend they didn't happen. You just get authority over it and realize that in this room, there's probably dozens of people who've walked through what you've walked through. And your story, your testimony, can help them get onto the other side of victory like you got onto the other side of it. In the Old Testament, there was a young man by the name of Joseph whose brothers hated him 
They, they conspired to kill him and they thought that's not good. We'll throw him into a pit, he'll die, but we didn't actually kill him with our own hands. And then they see some Midianite traders and they say, look, we don't even need to throw him in the pit. Let's just sell him into slavery. He'll die there. And we make money. Decades pass. They sold their brother, expected him to be dead. Their family experiences drought and famine. They're dying. The only person in all their world who had food was Pharaoh. So they made a journey to his kingdom and had an interview with the number two guy. In the middle of their interview, they realized that the number two guy is actually this young man, Joseph, that they sold into slavery to kill. He never died, he's alive. And they fear for their own life. Joseph looks at them with tears running down his face and he makes a statement. He said, you, you meant it for evil. What you did was jacked up. You shouldn't have done that. You should have protected me. You were my brothers. What you did was messed up. You meant it for evil. You did evil. That was an evil thing you did. He says, but God, I, I wouldn't be on this throne. He, he never at one point said, I enjoyed being sold into slavery. Thank you. That was awesome. No, he said, I, I, that, that happened. But I'm not a prisoner to the bitterness of that pain anymore. I, I, I've forgiven you. I've moved on and realized that all those bad things that happened set me up to where I am today and they're a part of my story. And, and if I wasn't sitting here on this throne today from all the pain that I've walked through, then you guys would die in the famine. Now what Joseph didn't realize is he could have said this, that it was actually bigger than he even anticipated. He could have said this, Judah, get out here. Judah, you're my older brother. You should have protected me but you try to kill me. Judah, unless it happened, I wouldn't be here today. Judah, this whole deal was put on to keep you alive. Because Judah, you don't know this, but in your loins is the seed to the Messiah. Judah, if you died in this famine, Messiah would die in you. And my pain put me on a throne that my story could keep the seed of the Messiah alive to generations. Judah, if you die in this famine, no one here at Sky City, no one here at Equipus Church would have an opportunity to get their life right with God because Messiah would die inside of you. So I don't enjoy my pain, but I realize that my story can lead other people in their relationship with Jesus. And that, my friend, is how you get kingdom authority. When you get over everything that they threw at you, when you get over all the pain that happened to you when you don't deny that it never happened but you just deal that it happened and you say that my God has brought me through the fire so I've got a story at the other side of it that can help other people find their way to heaven if you believe that today then why don't you give Jesus a great shout in the house this morning come on somebody somebody give Jesus a praise today I, I'm, not trying to make, I'm not trying to make light of your story. You can stand. I'm not trying to make light of your story. Please hear me out. I, I've been doing this thing a long time and I've heard the most horrific things that happen to people and still my mind gets blown away by the evilness of what can happen on an individual. I'm not trying to make light of your story. I'm just telling you that there's healing for it. I'm not trying to make it light for you. I'm just telling you there's healing for it and our God can heal you. If you need healing today, I want you just to close your eyes and just lift your hands to God. Father, begin that healing work in people's lives this morning. 
There's some people here that are going to forgive dads for leaving, forgive moms for leaving. People in this room today are going to forgive spouses. They've got to forgive exes. They've got to forgive children. Lord, there's people here today that are going to forgive pastors. They've got to forgive leaders. They've got to forgive next-door neighbors. They've got to forgive bosses. They've got to forgive the police. They've got to forgive prison wardens. Lord, there's people in this room that are going to forgive all sorts of people that hurt them and inflicted pain on their life. And God, uh, they, may be able to, they may be able to get to the other side of that today. Maybe it's going to be a journey that God begin the process, we pray. Just heal us, God. Come on, ask God that. Pray this prayer with me. Say, Jesus, please heal me from the inside out. Help me to embrace that authority that forgives those who've hurt me in my past and in my future. Allow me to be a person that's quick to forgive, to write the check, to make the payment, and to move on and to operate in kingdom authority. With your eyes closed right now, and last thing I'm gonna say, if you're here today and you're not right with God, and you need a brand new start in your life and relationship with Him, we're gonna pray a prayer right now. Maybe you've never prayed this prayer, you can pray it for the very, very first time. Maybe you've prayed it once and you've walked away from God, you wanna come home. You pray it again, God's gonna hear you. Maybe you just come to church because of a spouse or a friend. Today you want to get it right with God yourself. But if you need God's forgiveness, make this prayer your prayer. We're all going to pray and then someone's going to come and tell you what the next step is after that prayer. But let's all pray this together today. Say this with me. Say, Dear Jesus, I come to you this morning and I'm asking you to forgive me for all my past. And today, give me a brand new start in my life and relationship with you. Come into my world. Heal me from the inside out. Make me whole. And today, I begin my journey of getting to know you, getting to know your love, getting to know your grace, and getting to know your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you give Jesus Christ a great round of applause. God bless you this morning.